The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Do you know that God is always at work around you? And that in that work, he pursues us. He pursues you for a a continuing love relationship with him. And I want you to picture this. Picture God, your father, walking beside you with his arm around your shoulder, walking with you into the work that he has appointed for you today. God invites us into the work that he's doing. Why? Because he loves us. And he wants to involve us like a good father in the work that he is doing. And as he does, he speaks to us and he invites us. He beckons us, join my work. Join my work. But can we be honest, that invitation, that can be pretty uncomfortable, right? See, not only do we have to give God a yes in our hearts to join his work, we also have to give him a yes with our hands and to do the things that he's called us to do with our action. These are major adjustments, big changes, major obedience. And so maybe over the last few weeks, as you've grappled with this, this relationship with the Lord in which he invites us into his work, maybe you've begun to pray and to pay attention to where God is at work around you. Maybe you've heard him speak. Some of you have heard him speak clearly through his word or through your circumstances as led by the Holy Spirit through your times of prayer or brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he has called you in those moments to obedience, to obedience. As he's spoken, you're now sitting in a crisis of belief. Will I do what he has asked me to do? Will I do what he's calling me to do today? Will I not just say yes, but actually obey him? See, obedience, stepping out and and actually doing what God has called us to do. That's our moment of truth. That's our moment of truth in which we, we declare with our hearts and our hands that we trust him, that we love him, and that we will obey him. Do you love him? Do you trust him? Are you confident in his love for you? See, whoever has his commands and what? Keeps them. You are the ones who love him. That's John 14, 21. But this love, it's not one-sided. This verse goes on to say that as you love God and keeping his commands, he will love you by revealing himself in your life. You get to experience God as you obey him. In obedience, we experience God. I think far too often in life, we have this mindset where we, we want to experience God. And I've said this before, so that we obey him. We say, God, show me the path, show me the next step, uh, reveal it to me, give me a sign. I'm going to put a fleece outside and if it's wet, I'll follow you and then I'll put it out again. If it's dry, I'll follow you. That's uh, the Gideon method. And we try these kinds of things and we want to experience God so that we'll obey him. But what we see, the pattern of scripture and the pattern of our lives is actually this. We experience God as we obey him. He's already spoken. He's already with us. And as we step out in obedience, we see his hand. And, and, and let me tell you, for those that have experienced that, you wouldn't trade anything for it. God is with us and he's, he's present with us and we get to see his presence with us as we obey. What is obedience? What is obedience? Obedience is submission to the authority of God. It's submission to the authority of God in our actions. Simple instructions with a simple response of yes and doing it. I, I think sometimes we, we struggle with obedience and, and we're kind of like that kid who is asked to clean their room. Has anyone ever asked a child to clean their room? Anyone? Anyone ever been asked to clean a room? And, and then what's the response of, of us as, as we're asked to clean our room, given this simple instruction, clean your room. We're like a kid who, anyone have that attorney child? You know, the one that always has a good argument for everything. We say to ourselves, you know, that sounds like a really good idea. I think maybe I'll begin to study this concept of cleaning my room. Maybe I'll get a Greek lexicon. Maybe I'll get a, a biblical theology of cleaning my room. Perhaps I'll get some of my friends together and we'll do a study. 
how to clean your room. <laughs> Meanwhile, the parents is like, clean your room, right? Just do it. Just clean your room. And then the child goes upstairs and comes back and says, you know, I wanted to. I wanted to obey you, but the door was closed. And so I, I just couldn't. And I was looking for an open door and it wasn't there. We're like that, that kid. Maybe not really, but this is what we do. We receive these simple instructions from the Lord and we just want to think about it a lot. We want to pray about it a lot. And what is he asking us to do? Trust me, obey me. Trust me and obey me. Sometimes when it comes to stepping out in obedience to God, though, we all have objections. We have reasons where we, we don't necessarily know how it's going to turn out, even though we know he knows what's best for us. And, and I've been having this conversation a lot this week. I've been asking people this, this question, why do we still disobey? When we know that God is love, when we know that he is good, when we know that his ways are best, why, believers, do we still disobey him? I'm gonna take a bit of a risk here and, and just ask you all, if, if you'd be willing to throw out maybe one word or very brief phrase answers to this, why do we disobey him when we know that he loves us and knows what's best? We think we know better. We think we know better. Yeah. And how crazy is that, right? God, us, we know better. But yeah, I think you're right. What else? What's that? Fear of man. Fear of man. Anyone wrestle with that? Maybe you know someone who does? Yeah. Anything else? Afraid to let go. Afraid to let go. Yeah, it's kind of a combination of those two things. It's that fear and thinking that what we have is best. We need to hold on to it rather than having open hands to what God is calling us, leading us to do. Anything else? Pride. Pride. Yeah. Anyone else? Brave souls. Laziness. Laziness. That's a really honest and true answer, isn't it? It's easier sometimes to just do what's convenient, to do what, what we are, what we're comfortable doing, to spend time with the people that we know really well instead of maybe stepping out and, and walking across that street to the person who doesn't yet know Jesus. There, there are times in our life when we certainly choose convenience and just our own laziness over the call to obedience from God. Maybe it's because we have a lack of experience of God in our life in this way. We, we have heard these messages and we just haven't seen the reality of God in the way we've been, we've been talking about. He doesn't seem to answer our prayers the way he does with everyone else. Or we have all kinds of objections. Like uh, we feel unworthy because of sin in our life. We feel like we fall so far short of the call of God that even when he calls us to obedience, we think to ourselves, you've called the wrong guy. You called the wrong person. I don't have what it takes. And we forget the grace of God towards us. We, we forget that God, like, like the father of the prodigal son, he puts a robe upon us. He puts his arm around us, a ring on our finger, a kiss on our cheek, and he walks with us in this life. We forget this. And I think often it's, it's this, this fear that we've been talking about. We forget, and in our fear, we, we forget that he is able to accomplish through us what we cannot in our own strength. That's, that's the thing that's really been standing out to me is that what he calls us to do, he will enable us to do. But we often think in our disobedience, I can't, I'm not able. Whether it's letting go of that, that sin habit or, or stepping in obedience, stepping out in obedience to, to that task that he's called us to, we think to ourselves, God, I can't do this. And in some ways that's entirely true, but we forget that as we step forward in obedience, he will enable us to accomplish as we obey. In Joshua chapter three, I want you to see this passage 
There's this great example of, of this and, and this experience of God as they step out in a, a bit of blind obedience to the leading of God. See, in Joshua 3, Joshua has just been given leadership over the people of Israel. Moses has been their leader for a, a long time, for many, many years. And a generation has gone by where the people of God have not been able to cross into this promised land because they have been disobedient to the leading of God. We talked last week about the cost of obedience, but how many of you know that disobedience is even more costly? And so there they are waiting and waiting and waiting. And Joshua, through his faithfulness, is going to be the one that is going to lead them across the water, the Jordan River, from the east side to the west bank into Israel to claim this promised land of God. The time has finally come. There's only one problem, though. There is a large river, the Jordan River, in, in the way. So I want to read this and, and show you what happens here. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, so he receives this instruction and then he, he passes it along, as strange as it might sound. He says to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, how, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. So they're watching and he says, watch this. We are going to carry this precious ark of the covenant into a rushing river. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So, so picture this, the entire nation is gathered at this river that's rushing by. There's no way for them to cross over. And in fact, it's at flood stage. It has been uh, raining, water's been flowing in from all the different tributaries to the Jordan and there is no way this is going to happen. And then it says that the priests take the ark and they step into the water. And then watch what happens next. It says the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Hundreds of thousands of people cross over on dry land as these priests step out in obedience to the strange command from God. They step forward into the river and in so doing, they experience his power, the miraculous power of God. Joshua is obedient to this leading. And as he does this frankly bizarre instruction, look at what is accomplished. The effect is that Joshua gains credibility to lead this nation. They look at him and they see that he's been granted the same kind of authority as Moses, his predecessor. 
Israel finally comes into this promise that they've been waiting for for generations. And an entire nation experiences the awesome power of God Almighty, not just Israel, but every other nation thinking they're protected by this Jordan from the oncoming nation of Israel. They see the river dry up as God's people walk over on dry land. Now, I think the people of Israel, I wonder how they would feel about this experience. I think what we see in scripture is that they were still disobedient in the future. They still did things that were a violation of God's word, but not one of them could deny the reality and provision and power of God. They experienced God as they stepped out into that riverbed. They experienced him like never before. At the foundation of this, what God was revealing to Israel is that he loved them that he loved them, that he was providing this path for them. And see, God's instructions to us, when he leads us and calls us to obedience, he's accomplishing two things. The instructions of God, they both guard us and they guide us. They guard us and they guide us. They are good for us, for our well-being, for our blessing. And they are also a guide to us. In other words, his instructions give us warning and they also show us the way. God's words to you, his instruction to you, it's not just idle words, they are life. They are the path of life. And so maybe you object. You say, Mark, that's a cool story, but that was for Israel a long time ago. I'm not facing any rivers. I don't really understand the application to my life. What I want you to see is, is just simply this, that as they stepped out in obedience, that's when they experienced his power. But I also want to ask you, what water has God been calling you to step into? Where is he calling you to obedience this morning? I want you to see that, that in this experience of God, as we obey, it's not just for people with a specific calling. It's not just for some kind of special people. If you're in Christ, guess what? You're pretty special. You are sons and daughters of the living God. You're adopted into his family. You're called with unique gifting to his church, to ministry. And I need you to see from God's word this, this reality, that this continues for us, this experience of God through our obedience. Do you have your Bibles with you? If you could turn to Luke chapter 10, if you uh, wanna flip there from Joshua 3, go over to Luke chapter 10. We're gonna see this in the New Testament. We're gonna see this with a smaller group of people and we're going to see this play out with people who are frankly quite ordinary. In Luke chapter 10, in this passage, what we have is a crowd of people around Jesus and, and he's just declared to them in, in Luke chapter nine, the cost of following him as uh, Tyler preached on last week. But those that have remained, there's still a crowd around Jesus. Those that have remained have heard the cost and they're willing to work. They're ready to get after it and to work. And so the 12 have already been mobilized, sent out. We, we expect them to do great things. They're so close to Jesus through the, the future apostles. But watch this. Watch what he does next. It says this in chapter 10, starting in verse one. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So Jesus picks out 72 ordinary people. Their, their names are never mentioned in the scriptures and he sends them out to join the Father's work. And he sends them out two by two. I, I can tell you that when ministering, it is such a gift to have someone else by your side. It, it emboldens you. You can mutually encourage one another. You can pray for each other. It makes this hard work of following Jesus in obedience that much easier to have someone else. But he sends them out two by two. And they're able to mutually encourage one another. And he says to them this, starting in, in verse two, it says, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, this is instruction number one, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so these 72 followers of Jesus, they, they pray 
in agreement with Jesus. They pray for this, that the Lord would raise up even more. And they're praying for themselves and they're praying for their, their fellow pairs that are going out, these, these duos that are being sent out into this work. Because there's a lot of work to do. And he says, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon it. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now listen to this. Heal the sick in it. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, if we read that and we place ourselves in the midst, in the company of these 72, some of you are already feeling a little bit stressed out by this task that Jesus has just given them. He says, first, pray earnestly that the Lord would raise up laborers. We can do that. Lord, raise up someone else to go and do this work. And then he says, go out. He says, uh, don't bring any sandals. That means don't bring any extra shoes. He, he, he sends them out wearing only the shoes on their feet, the tunics that they're already wearing and nothing else. And I, I don't know what this instruction would look like in, in modern terms, but he's, he's saying essentially this, don't bring any food, don't book an Airbnb, don't bring your phone or your phone charger, forget the coffee, don't arrange any place to stay, don't stop along the way and make small talk, don't ask anyone else for further instructions, simply do what I just instructed you to do. How does that feel? And then what you're gonna do when you get into town, the two of you are gonna knock on doors and you're gonna knock on that first door and when that door opens to you, you are going to simply declare peace upon that home. And if that's a house in which I'm at work, if that's a house in which the people there are receptive to the gospel, they'll welcome you and you can enter and you're going to stay with them. And despite not bringing anything with you, they will provide for your needs, but you're also gonna encounter something else in those homes. Sick people, people that need healing, people that need physical healing, people that need deep emotional and spiritual healing. And you will have the authority to declare healing over them and it will happen. That's what he tells them. That is a, kind of an overwhelming commission, isn't it? There's so much uncertainty every step of, that way, of the way as they go out. Nothing to eat, nothing with me, no extra clothes, not sure where I'm gonna stay. What if I get rejected? What if no house welcomes me? What if, and maybe this is the scariest part, as I declare healing upon people in the name of Jesus, what if it doesn't happen? Then what? Then what? So many reasons not to obey. This is awkward. It's scary. I don't know if I can do this. And yet every step of this journey, they will be faced with this crisis of belief. This is, this is what we face in ordinary day-to-day -day Christianity, these crises of belief in which we have to ask ourselves, do I trust God? Will I take that next awkward step of obedience? And so they do. They go out, the 72 go out to, to do this work. And, and here's the key for these guys. Uh, these, I, I don't know if they're men or women, it doesn't actually say. I, it's, it's this group of 72, as they go out, what it says is, is they obey this. And here's the key. They've been with Jesus. They've watched him work. They've seen him pronounce healing. 
They've seen this model. They've been near to him in relationship. And then he gives them this key reassurance. He says, take comfort in this. As you step out in obedience, and this is for all of us, whether you are received or rejected, it's not about you. It is Jesus that is accepted or rejected. He says this in verse 16. He says, the one who hears me, hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. This obedience will be costly to them. This is not an easy task he's given them, but watch what they get. They go, they step out in faith, they minister for days in these towns, these surrounding villages as Jesus is about to come into these towns. They spread the word ahead of time and watch what happens in verse 17. It says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. When they get back, from this journey, when they get back two by two and they come to Jesus, they're all saying the same things. They are blown away. And it's, it's almost like they expect Jesus to be surprised by this himself. They bring him this news. And not only are people being healed physically at their commands, they're seeing the power of God to break demonic chains over people. They're seeing people set free from oppression in the name, authority, and power of Jesus. And as they obey him, they experience God in this deep, profound way as he works through them in ways they can hardly understand or believe. And so just picture it, picture it as they're all coming back, the buzz around the dinner table or the campfire as they're sharing these stories, the excitement, the tears that are coming to their eyes as they recount what God has done. Look at what he's doing. Look at what he's doing in the name of Jesus. People are healed, strongholds are broken, demons are driven out through 72 ordinary followers of Jesus. And he says to them, as they're recounting these stories to them, he says, I saw, he's, he's, Jesus is seeing into the spiritual reality. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Have you ever noticed this story? Have you ever placed yourself in the narrative of this story and seen that, that as Jesus sent out 72 ordinary individuals because they were his, because they belonged to him, they went out with the authority of his name in the power of his spirit. And what they experienced was that he enabled them in the work that he had called them to do. And in so doing, they experienced God's reality profoundly. I just picture the face of Jesus as they're telling these stories. Tears coming to his eyes, perhaps a smile across his face. Jesus, so proud of these servants, these friends. And he says, the work that you're doing has cast Satan down. And even better than that, even better than that, your names are written in heaven. You belong to me. Jumping to verse 23, it says, then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I want you to look at what they gained. What they gained in this obedience. They experienced God as never before. And they heard Jesus declare this. This is so awesome. That their names are written in heaven. That means they are secure eternally with him. That they will have life unending. Look at what they gained as they obeyed him. They got to, to see the power of God at work through them. And they received this, this confirmation of their salvation. 
Where is God calling you to obey him this morning? What is it for you? Maybe it's not anything dramatic. Maybe it's something really simple, but, but my hope and my prayer is that the spirit of God brings a gentle conviction to your heart to say, this is it. This is the task I have for you today. This is the change that I have for you to make. Whatever it is, this is it. What is it for you today? When I first got married, God had long been impressing on my heart that he had called me to ministry. And, and I'm gonna share a story that I, I share every once in a while uh, here in, in the church because it, it so profoundly illustrated this to me. God revealed himself in a way that I, had, uh, that I have never forgotten and never will. Uh, and so when I was first married to Beth, I remember in our dating relationship, as it, as it became more and more serious and we started to talk about our future together, I asked her this question. I said, do you think that you could ever be married to a pastor? And she thought about it and she was like, well, I guess it depends what he looks like, you know? <laughs> no, she, didn't, she didn't say that, uh, thankfully. Um, but she thought about it and, and she determined that, yes, she could be married to a pastor even if it was me. And uh, this was kind of the, the conversation from the beginning of our relationship together because we knew that God was leading us this way. We didn't know exactly what it would look like, um, but as we talked about it over the last few weeks, God had spoken to us clearly. He had, had confirmed this calling in a number of ways by his spirit through prayer, through his word, through, through the circumstances of life, uh, the opportunities that he had given us and um, through brothers and sisters in the Lord confirming this, that at some point I was to be a pastor. And I didn't know where and I didn't know when or how, but I did know, this is what I knew, and this is, some of you can identify with this in whatever area of life he's called you to. He had arrested my heart for that purpose. It was, it was as if I knew very clearly, if I turned to the right or the left, that I would, was being blatantly disobedient to God. And so, so we made a, a commitment that, that we were going to continue to prayerfully pursue this, and Beth and I were unified in our yes to God in this area of our life. The only problem was being in a position to be obedient. It requires major life adjustments. See, like many young couples today, when, when we first got married, we had a whole lot of love and a whole lot of student loan debt, right? Anyone identify with that? And so, so we brought that to the Lord and we prayed about our future. And what we both felt strongly convicted about was that God had a big task for us before stepping out into full-time vocational ministry. He wanted us to be completely debt-free, saw that our life, our future was bound to our obligations, that in some sense we, we were slave to this debt, that we were really not free to go to this side of the world or that side of the world, wherever God would have us. And so he convicted us, I need you to work on this first, to be unencumbered in your service to me. See, God didn't just want our good ideas. He wanted our obedience. He wanted us to, to follow him in this thing first. And so we, we made a commitment to two financial priorities actually at the time. Number one, we were going to give to God first. And we were going to do that by, by tithing at least 10% of our income to God's church. And secondly, what we were going to do is we were going to knock out that student loan debt quickly. And when I say quickly, I mean it took years. It took something like three and a half years. But we remained steadfast in this commitment to the Lord because we knew that that's what obedience required. And so sometimes obedience is short-term. It's like, what is God calling you to do today? Sometimes it's quite long. Uh, maybe you remember the Eugene Peterson book. It was a long obedience in the same direction. That's what he called this Christian life. Sometimes that's what it feels like. It's this long obedience in the same direction. And so we continued to do what we knew to do until God had clarified what it was that he was calling us to in the future. And so this took major adjustments in our life, in our lifestyle. 
It took daily choices to be obedient. Would we be obedient to give faithfully to the work of God even when we were underwater? Didn't really make sense. And yet we were convicted that that's what God had called us to do. Would we be obedient to make sacrifices to pay off debt as the Lord was leading us? Would we be obedient to remain faithful in the life that God had called us to for that season, even if it meant putting a ministry calling, this really good thing on layaway for years? A crisis of belief, major adjustments, a call not just to willing hearts, but obedient hands. And so we got to work. Beth, uh, in government and later in teaching, me in business, while while working part-time at the church, major adjustments, but we were committed to this. And and by God's grace, as we stayed steady in the work that he had called us to, in our giving, our service, and our commitment to the task, this meant that, that we were able to accomplish this in just a few years. But what it also meant was that during that time, we had like nothing in our savings for years, actually just $1,000. Why? Because Dave Ramsey said so, right? Well, God has been so gracious to us. Like he, he's met every need. He met every need during that time. And, and we were amazingly able to become completely debt-free in just a few years and then to scrape together a tiny down payment for the townhouse we now live in in, in Manassas. And we're so grateful. But at that point, once that task was done, we were faced with that next crisis of belief. We had been praying for years, asking God to lead us and increasingly convinced that, that this was kind of the marker. When we were debt-free, then And even though Beth had now stopped working outside of the home, she was staying home with our our newborn, Molly, this was the time to be obedient, to to stop drifting to the right or the left, to to stop focusing on on whatever other priorities there might be and to make that transition to go all in in full-time ministry. There was a restlessness, a holy dissatisfaction, and some of you can identify that. And we knew it was time to step out in faith despite what that would mean for us, which was a number of things, a, a drop in income, a newborn a baby at home, a new mortgage payment. There are a lot of things that would make this difficult, a crisis of belief. And yet, no, we knew that the time had come and it was time to step out in obedience to this calling. And despite all the uncertainty, God did have our yes. And so we began to pray. And this is what we, we did. This is what I would encourage you to do. If you're, if you're unsure about where God is leading right now, pray for clarity. And so we prayed and we, we fasted some and we sought the Lord uh, about what that next step would be and we were willing to say yes immediately when it came. Was it church planting? Was it missions work? Was it going to be here at the King's Chapel? I mean, I can make this story a lot shorter. You know where I ended up, right? Here I am. But God, in, in exactly the right time, in response to, to prayer, he did open an opportunity for me to pastor here full time. There's a crisis of belief a kind of a blind obedience, a step forward. God, you have my yes. And, and so we stepped out and, and made this change and all seemed to be going well for a while. And that was fine. Until one month when, when suddenly every expense seemed to stack up at the same point. Everything seemed to be breaking. Uh, you know, our, our savings began to dwindle. Not that there was much there in the first place. And, and have any of you ever had an experience like that? Like that kind of month where it all just seems to be drying up? Yeah, and so here we are shortly after transitioning into this work of full-time ministry and everything seemed to be falling apart at once. Our car was in the shop, our roof had to be replaced, the bills were rolling in, we had run out of money to pay them and yet I had this, this sense that if this is what you've called me to, God, I, I believe that you will enable us to accomplish this. I believe that you will provide for us. But one morning we find ourselves completely cash poor, zero dollars in our checking, zero dollars in our savings, expenses coming through that day that are sure to overdraft our account. Some of you maybe have never experienced that before. Some of you, that's just Tuesday, right? And, and for us though, for me, in that season of transition and change, 
it was really stressful. I, I felt overwhelmed. I felt anxious. I felt like there's, I can't provide for my family. I felt inadequate as a, as a man, as a provider, all these things. And, I, and I'm looking at my life and I'm like, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do as, as these bills are rolling in. And I just remember feeling desperate that morning. Some of you can feel that a little bit. And I've been praying all morning, actually praying all week, Lord, provide for us. Before I head into church, uh, we only have one car that day. So Beth drives me to the church to drop me off. It's raining outside just like it is today. And, um, and as I'm about to head into the church, I, I stop and I ask Beth, can you please pray one more time? And so she prays a much calmer, less stressed out, daily bread kind of prayer. God, I know you've called us to this. Um, you, you've got enough for us. You have the cattle on a thousand hills. So please provide for us. And so I get out of the car, I head into the church and there's no one else in the office that morning. And so stressed down and stressed out and beaten down, I walk into the office back there and I go and check my mail slot. And some of you know this story well. I look down and there's no mail in my mail slot except for a fat white envelope with a handwritten note on it that simply says, Mark, be blessed, God provides. And I open the envelope and there's $220 cash in there for my family from God. Just the right amount at that right moment. It was amazing. It was completely overwhelming. I mean, the first thing I did is I was kind of crying because I'm like, God, you see me, you're real, you care about me. See, we hadn't made that need known to anyone else. Too proud to do that, right? But I immediately just take $20 and put it in the offering box. And, um, you know, I know that's not actually 10% of 220, but... (laughs) Homeschool math, it is. So. <laughs> but I, I praise God and I call it Beth and tell her what had happened. Now, now this is what continues to blow me away. Up to that point, I had never had anyone give me money in that way. And, and up to that point, I had never had zero dollars in my bank account before. Haven't since. But on the one day, on the one day in which I had nothing, absolutely desperate, questioning, fearful, I experienced the reality of God profoundly as he met that need, as he confirmed that he was with me in what he had called me to do. See, God has shown me many times his steadfast faithfulness, his miraculous provision, but you wanna know when I've experienced the most, him most in my life? It's when I've determined that I do love him, that I do trust him, that I will give him what little faith I have as he leads my next step of obedience. And what blew away about that morning isn't just that God provided for us, but this is, this is the part that always uh, is amazing to me. He provided through someone who was praying, who was listening, who was led by the Holy Spirit to do this thing that, that honestly seems strange. A crisis of belief. God, do you really want me to do this? I, I don't know who it was. This, this doesn't make sense. And that individual determined to obey, not knowing that that morning would radically change my life changed my understanding of the reality of God, changed my experience of him. It was a morning that I will never forget. There is a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost to our families. There's a cost to to our own ambitions. There's a cost financially, relationally, a cost of comfort and control, a cost of of overcoming fear and anxiety, a sacrifice of self-will, self-direction, self-fulfillment. Following Jesus isn't free, but it's worth it. And I hope you began to see that last week as Tyler preached about not just the cost, but the surpassing worth of this call. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3.8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
Yeah, in following Jesus, we lose our lives, but we gain everything. See, in, in this scripture we read in Luke 10, God chose 72, no more special than anyone in this room, and he invited them into his work. And in what they experienced as a result of their obedience was the power and the presence of God, the reality of God in a way that they had not seen before, the authority of Jesus over darkness, and a steadfast assurance that they belong to him for eternity. This is what happens when we yield ourselves in obedience, obedience to God. Where is God calling you to obedience today? I ask you again. Where is he calling you? What decision point are you facing? Maybe it's a rejection of sin. Maybe it's a call to action. Maybe it's a certain conversation that you've been putting off, but you've heard him clearly. And as he guides you according to his word, as he does this work, he does so because he loves you. Take hold of that. Trust him in that. Trust him with your obedience. I think sometimes the reason we struggle to obey is because we're struggling in our relationship with God. It's really hard to follow the instructions of a stranger, isn't it? And yet this morning is once again an invitation back into this love relationship with him. He loves you and he cares for you. For some of this, you simply need to start this way. You cannot obey him if you don't belong to him, if you're not yet a Christian. See, if you're not a Christian, you have not yet received the spirit of Christ to enable a righteous life. First John 2, 4 says, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And likewise, to keep his commandments, you must know him. So let's begin there. Have you come to believe in Jesus as your savior? We're going to take communion as we respond. But I, what I want you to see as we take communion is that communion is an act of obedience. It's an act of remembrance. It's an act of relationship with God. And so this morning, if nothing else, this discussion of, of obedience is an invitation back to relationship with God. I wanna ask you right now to prepare your hearts for communion. If you're a believer, to go before the Lord right now in humble and silent confession and preparation.